Unleavened Bread Ministries presents From your hands, your feet, your side Unleavened Bread Bible Studies with David Eels Can quench my thirsting soul Pure as water made me whole Let your streams of mercy flow Oh Jesus, I trust in you Greetings, saints. Many blessings to you. Thank you for joining us today for the Unleavened Bread Bible Study. Father, thank you so much for making this possible and giving us understanding, Lord. Um, We ask for your grace constantly, Lord, to keep our eyes open and, and open them to truths that you want to show us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to continue with Ministering Angels through UBM. And I'm going to start with a revelation given to Debbie Finsky. Um, Father said, continue in sacrificial living unto him. This is our one of our best defenses here, folks. Debbie said, I prayed and I feel the Lord okayed me to share this. I was meditating on Romans 12 and 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. And during the night, the Lord led me in praying that we would have a changed sacrificial aroma unto him even after these eight days as we continue daily in uh, sacrificial living unto him and he said be sure not to go back into old habits but love me and one another well we know that the angel jeruel said that the new method of worship should also continue on after the eight days, and uh, we have done that. So, she goes on to say, After that, two times throughout the night, as I would finally start to drift off to sleep, I was awakened hearing a word spoken very clearly. The first time I heard coronation, and the second time I heard revival. This morning the Lord said, Be sure to not go back to your old habits, but loving and serving me and one another. And, of course, he was speaking of a meager lifestyle and a uh, a lifestyle of supreme uh, worship and praise to him. Okay? So, let me say that after the eighth day... Um, Stay in close relationship to the Lord and the crucified life. And then the crowning of Jesus in the man-child comes, as she pointed out, and the revival that results from that. So Jesus, uh, the man-child, started the revival in his day, and it's going to be the same in our day. He's just walking in a different body of the Son of David. That's that's all. Different body. 
But it's a corporate body because Jesus uh, wanted to reach the world and not just the Middle East, right? So praise be to God. Eve said she had heard this very same message that Debbie received, spoken to her the same morning of 8-17-22. Okay. So now I want to share this with you. This is Eve Brass Revelation on 9-2-22. And we called it UBM is at the Red Sea now. She said, I dreamed that all of local and larger UBM who had obeyed Father's commands for the eight-day fast in the last century Book of Acts church were gathered at the edge of the Red Sea. Those who had forsaken all the ways of Egypt and had completely come out into the wilderness were gathered there. No one had anything with them except their clothes. Everyone was dressed like Israelites of old in clothing that was in different shades of blue. Uh, Well, the shades of blue represent being dressed up in heavenly works, right? Um, She said, I only saw men in the dream because... My view of the people didn't extend beyond those that were closest to the rock that David and I were standing on. I didn't see women or children in the dream. Uh, she said their numbers were were not in the thousands, but only a few hundred. I asked the Lord what the few hundred or three hundred that were next to the Red Sea represented, and I heard the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. I believe they represent those who aren't fearful to engage in the battle and also those that the Lord has tried at the water's edge. These are the overcomers who have obeyed the Lord and not their flesh. That's in Judges Chapter 7, uh, 2 through 14. And this could be uh, the men of leadership under the man-child Davids who are prepared for the wilderness tribulation before the church arrives. Gideon was a type of the man-child and his 300 tested men who blew the shofars and broke the pitchers, were a type of the leadership of the bride, uh, the disciples and the apostles. And these uh, went out to conquer the enemies for God's people. So the parallel is pretty neat there. Um, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon was a powerful and exciting announcement of the beginning of the battle to divide and scatter the demonic enemies of UBM and the David Ministries. This announcement signaled the breaking of the clay pitcher representing the flesh, so the torch, as the light of God's life and word, could shine out. This made it possible for the shofar, symbolizing the breath, which in Hebrew is the same word for spirit, to become audible in the physical realm, 
uh, meaning this is the true prophetic word of God which is spoken to bring every victory. This is the sword of the Lord and of Gideon to scatter the demonic enemy. Amen. The waters of the Red Sea were calm at the moment, and uh, it was dark outside, but I could see everything by the bright light of the moon, and I was standing on top of a large rock that was near the water's edge, observing the whole scene. And I was distressed, uh, excuse me, I was dressed in some type of sheer material that was flowing and full of wind, although everything else around me was still. I saw David representing the David man-child reformers on the rock uh, further down, closer to the people. He was speaking with some of the men who were closest to the rock's edge, David was dressed in modern blue jeans and a light blue-colored short-sleeved polo shirt. What? No suit? (laughs) I'm sure that's what people think it should be in that day, right? No. God's not interested in all that. Um, Egypt was behind us, at our backs. There was no danger from enemies or fear that they were going to trap us there in the dream. Everyone was at peace and waiting on the Lord. Well, everybody hasn't showed up yet there, though, have they? Um, I suppose that they were waiting for the rest of the church to show up so that we could all cross the Red Sea together and uh, see their enemies decimated in time for, what, the tribulation. Yeah. Then the voice of God spoke out of heaven to David and all the people from the direction that was between us and Egypt. He said, These are my people who have obeyed all my commands and have left Egypt behind to follow me into the wilderness. I will provide for your every need from now on. I have scattered and defeated your enemies and they are no longer any threat to you. Well, this is true of the first fruits, man, child, and bride, but not yet true of the remaining church. So, but it is a promise, of course. All of the promises of God are to all of the people of God. It's just that all do not have uh, the faith to partake in these things. He went on to say, Do not look back towards Egypt. Do not heed the voice of man or pay attention to their leavened speech. Do not look to their ways or consider their lies and deceptions. And I got to tell you, in the political realm, this is on both sides. Even though we favor the better, we don't believe in the way the world fights war, right? He continued, You will hearken unto my voice alone and be led by my spirit alone. And then I woke up. Father continued to speak to me after I woke up. He said, No other information or direction of man pertains to you. My ways are above their ways, and my sons hear and consider my voice alone. 
continued to put away the devices of Egypt that bring distraction and separation from me and my spirit, cast down and reject all the voices of vanity, deception, and the reasonings of men that cause you to err in your minds and dull your hearing and your understanding. What I am doing with my bride and for my people has nothing to do with the vain plans or ways of men. Only my purposes will succeed. Only my plans will stand. I will cause you to walk above this earth in my heavenly places. You are not on their timeline, You are, uh, nor are you subject to the things of this world or the wicked plans of men who don't consider me or call upon me. I will be your all in all your only source and provision in my wilderness. Uh, for the wilderness and everything in it belongs to me and not to wicked men. Refrain from looking backward and going backward only to meet with the same destruction as Lot's wife, for you are in the days of Lot. Destruction is coming quickly to Sodom and Gomorrah. This is it. Only those who completely divorce themselves from Egypt and climb the mountain to remain continually in my presence will be hidden. The rest will fall in this wilderness tribulation due to the wavering of their faith, a lack of obedience, and succumbing to their enemies. You will no longer be as the Israelites of old who refused to climb the mountain with Moses to come into my presence and hear my words for fear of death. Everyone will climb the mountain and enter into my presence and hear my voice and my spirit. Ask of me all things that pertain to your lives and godliness, and I will give it to you in abundance. I am for you, and I wish that none of you perish. Hold fast to my promises and don't be slack to perform all that I have commanded you through my messengers. My peace will rest upon you and great success will be yours in your obedience as you continue to seek my face and draw close to me. Amen. Amen. I agree. Uh, okay, well, this I'm going to share a little something about the, the sign of David the the man child and crucifixion and resurrection um i tried to call shalanda and her number was not in my phone <laughs> which is crazy uh, but my e-list in my phone uh, was messed up for some reason so i checked my contacts and her name was in there five times but there was no contact information there i don't know if any of you out there are having the same trouble with your internet or your phones and so on and so forth you know i'm hearing from a lot of people that they are uh so i took the first name and put her phone number in it i deleted the next one and when I went to delete the third name, my phone reacted immediately and went dark. So the the third delete was in the midst 
of the five, which is grace. Um, with the totally black screen of what people call the screen of death, I thought whoever deleted my contact info had now deleted my phone through that middle name. Because when I touched it, it was like touching something that was invading my phone, right? And uh, it just went totally dark. So I found myself saying, I am cut off from UBM. <laughs> That's what came out of my mouth, right? Uh, cut off, by the way, is a scriptural term meaning death. Then I remembered the angel telling us I would be crucified, and Marilyn had a dream that I was crucified, which we'll share in a minute. Uh, Eve and Lakeisha got the same verse in two different Gospels that I had been crucified. And now I'll share that with you, too. Um, When I deleted the Shalanda name and my phone went dead and black, what immediately came out of my mouth was, I am cut off from UBM. And immediately I thought of our man-child, Jesus, being cut off as a type of the man-child in our day being cut off in death. Hmm. For instance, Isaiah 53 and 7 uh, and 8 says, He was oppressed, yet when he was afflicted, he opened not his mouth, as a lamb that is led to slaughter, and as a sheep that before its shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who among them considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Well, there it is. He died. Cut off meant died. And in other places it means the same thing. Uh, It can also mean a spiritual death and a spiritual resurrection to follow, right? Okay, the other text, uh, Daniel nine twenty six and 27 says, And after threescore and two weeks shall the anointed one, that's the word used for Messiah, be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with the flood, and even unto the end shall be war, desolations are determined. That leads into the tribulation, right? And he shall make a firm covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week, look at that, midst of the week. It was in the midst of those names that my phone was cut off, and I was cut off from contacting UBM. He shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and upon the wing of abominations shall come one that maketh desolate. And I believe that is the mark of the beast. And even unto the full end, and that determined, shall wrath be poured out upon the desolate. Mm -hmm. So, let me say that I knew years ago that I was coming to a crucifixion one day, 
And I asked the Lord if my crucifixion at the hand of all the Judases since 2011 would count for my crucifixion, and there would be no need for a terrible crucifixion attack at the end. And he gave me a yes at that time and confirmed it with two heads as a confirmation. So, um, I, of course, I have already suffered uh, crucifixion at the hands of all these Judases all these years in defending the body of Christ and so on. And um, it has done a good work in me. I'm not complaining a bit, <laughs> nor nor I believe any of the other people out there that are taking part in this same kind of a situation are complaining because they run, understand that this is all part of it. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, right? So this all happened, by the way, on 9-1-22. And I was thinking, since this cutting off day signifies the death of the man-child, what will happen on the third day, which would in the natural be 9-4? The resurrection of the man-child body? So my next question to the Lord was, is this a sign of something to come or a sign of what is happening now? Well, obviously, it was a sign of something to come. We know that for sure now, okay? Um, I asked Eve to ask the Lord after three days, what? Um, Lord, is this the manifestation of the man-child's death? On the third day, will there be a manifestation of the man-child's resurrection? Will the throne anointing manifest then? So on nine one twenty two, Eve said, I asked Father to please answer these questions for David. And Father said, This is yet another sign of the coming fulfillment of my plans and promises to you. So it's a, a, future, a sign of something that is coming shortly. Okay. Um, and as we shall see below... Lakeisha Watson and Eve Brass got the same verses about David's crucifixion on eight fifteen twenty two. Interesting. Uh, Lakeisha said, I would like to share a small thing that happened to me today. As I was reading Mark fifteen thirty nine, David accidentally called me at ten ten AM. The part of that verse I had just finished reading said, Truly this man was the Son of God. However, there's a footnote there in the ASV which says, A Son of God. And of course, this is what the Roman soldier would have said. He wouldn't have said the Son of God. They weren't familiar with that. He was familiar with many gods, obviously a son of God. So this is being used because uh, Jesus said, whosoever, or whatsoever I should say, whatsoever you have done to the least of these my disciples, you have done it unto me. And Paul said, you are all sons of God through faith. Also a Roman soldier would have said this, right? 
Okay, in other words, a son of God. So, um, he mentioned that Eve had also gotten the same words. So I took it that Father was saying that David is indeed one of his sons. Oh, I'm sure of that. Um, and Eve replied, this is this totally confirms the word I received for him back in mid-July in Matthew 27 and 54. Okay, a different gospel. My finger was on the underlined phrase. And here's the text. Now the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were done feared exceedingly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. Now that's where her finger landed, right there in that. The same thing um, that Lakeisha got. And of course, again, it's or a Son of God as above, right? Then we had our morning meeting when we asked for verses by faith at random. And none of the saints knew of my revelation when they got their verses. So we got many confirmations in that meeting. This has happened to us many times. Is I would get a revelation during the night, and all the verses the next day would start confirming it. This has happened to us many times. And, of course, they don't know what I'm thinking or what I'm going through at night or what the Lord is saying to me at night. Uh now I'm going to overwhelm you with evidence that God is speaking here of the death and resurrection of the man-child David's. Okay. Don got Psalm 22, 1 through 8. Um, it's a Psalm of David. He said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's what he got. Well, huh. That was spoken by the man-child Jesus on the cross. On the cross. There you go again. Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Uh, six. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. Yes, these are the same people that cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Yeah. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, Commit thyself unto the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, seeing he delighteth in him. Well, this was, this was said by the apostate leadership when the man-child Jesus was on the cross. Another powerful confirmation. And Barry got... Luke twenty four twenty one through 26. But we hoped that it was he who should redeem Israel. That, why were they hoping that? Because he had gone to the cross. Yea, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things came to pass. The resurrection day. Hmm. Moreover, certain women of our company amazed us, having been early at the tomb. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels. See, some people don't 
know about the visions of angels. They don't know about angels coming to speak to men. They don't I mean, remember that the shepherds in the field, which is the same word, poimen, uh, in the Greek for pastors, the angels appeared to them and spoke to them at the time of what? The time of the man-child's coming. And they gave them instructions to go to the man-child. Right? Okay, so these angels appeared who said that he was alive. And certain of them that were with us went to the tomb and found it even so as the women had said. But him they saw not. And he said unto them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Behooved it not the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Okay, so uh, Matt got this. Uh, Matt Ezel, uh, Mark 16, 1 through 4. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, uh, brought spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, they come to the tomb when the sun was risen. And they were saying among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the tomb? And looking up, they see that the stone is rolled back. For it was exceedingly great, the resurrection. Mm-hmm. And when he got Romans 5, 6 through 11, For while we were yet weak in due season, Christ died for the ungodly. He went to the cross for us. He bore our curse and our sins upon the cross. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, peradventure for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God commendeth his own love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It keeps repeating this. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, shall we be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, being reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. All because he went to the cross, right? And Brandy got John 21 and 20. Peter, turning about, seeing the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also leaned back on his breast at the supper, and said, Lord, who is he that betrayeth thee? Well, of course, we know the factious Judases uh, will die when the man-childs die to self, as it was with Jesus. Everything is repeated. History always repeats. You can count on these uh, Judas leaderships to be gone then. So uh, Amber got Matthew twenty-one thirty-three through 41. Here another parable. Listen to this. There was a man that was a householder, that's the Lord, who planted a vineyard, that's us, 
and set out a hedge about it and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen. That's the false leadership. And went into another country. And when the season of the fruits drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen to receive his fruits. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again they sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them in like manner. And of course, so who has killed all the prophets and who killed the apostles and who did these? Yeah, God's people. Yeah, especially their leadership. The husbandmen. But afterwards he sent unto them his son, his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But the husbandmen, when they saw the son, said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and take his inheritance. I want to tell you that the factious leaders from um, 2011 on, that's exactly what the motive was for them to continue to attack and try to take over UBM. I rebuked the first one to the last one. They all failed. And uh, they took him and cast him forth out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the Lord of the vineyard shall come, what will he do unto those husbandmen? They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those miserable men and will let out the vineyard in unto other husbandmen who shall render him the fruits of their seasons. And that's exactly what he's going to do. Okay, this is uh, Marilyn Clink's uh, dream, and we call it David's Final Crucifixion. Yeah. However, as I've shared, I don't think it's going to be the terrible thing that... Um, it it could have been because Jesus bore the curse upon himself. I had a very brief dream and I knew that I was at Calvary with other people who were standing around like spectators and that David was about to be crucified. <laughs> I didn't see him, but I knew that they were just about to nail him to the cross. End of the dream. Well, there you go. And see, we're constantly getting this affirmation. You know that the David Manchild Ministries or David Manchild Reformers are about to be crucified. In other words, put to death, right? And this death, by the way, is a gift from God. You know, uh, death to self is a gift from God. So just remember that. Okay, this is Claire Pinar's revelation on eight eighteen twenty two. We called it the factious Judases are exposed. Yep, well Judas was exposed, wasn't he? Yeah. He thought he would get away with it, but he didn't. I had a quick dream on August the eighteenth that David and I were in a pantry that was actually a shed at the back of his or my home. He was cleaning out rats from under a wine vat or barrel that he was using for storage. Well, this wine vat 
representing the blood or nature of Jesus. Remember what wine represents in the Lord's Supper, right? Uh, it's And the, the life of the flesh is in the blood. So it is the nature of Jesus it represents. And it is our message to the world of true Christianity. It is stored just as our granaries are stored, and that's the seed of the kingdom for the day appointed because they are for the anointed man-child. The, uh, the rats are the factious Judases who crucify the man-child. Okay. I was waiting for David to command the healing into a woman who in the dream had gone through four miscarriages. Well, let me say, the church is not bringing forth the fruit of Jesus to fruition because they don't know the real gospel and they aren't filled with faith and the Spirit of God. David was really busy with these rats, though. One rat got away, and the other he was busy with. Well, uh, the angels said the factious leaders were not yet physically dead, but the time was coming. This is because Judas died after he betrayed Jesus, the man-child, and Judas will die somewhere close to when the man-child dies, and I mean dies to self, right? It's completely crucified to self, okay? Um, I was holding on to David's arm, waiting for him to stop with the rats so he could help me command healing into this lady. Well, let me say that we cannot help the lady church bear fruit while the rats are doing their thing, which is the harlot that kept Joseph in prison, which I uh, mentioned in the praise meeting. The faction has attacked everyone who mentions my name or the ministry name in order to destroy them with slander. And anyone who posted anything about us on the net was attacked by slander and witchcraft. The rats were in the danger under the wine vat. They were the danger under the wine vat. So, we couldn't pull the wine or grain out of storage in any significant way until God's time and they were done in. And that is when Joseph came out of prison. And now comes the man-child who uses the wine and the grain to build the people of God into the temple of God. What an awesome story. What an awesome revelation. And uh, let me say that they've done everything they could to stop the gospel going out. These are demon-possessed people. This, the last uh, uh, leader of the faction, you know, took down our website. We have proof, actually, from Apple themselves proved it was him. And he uh, coordinated with another woman who took down our, our videos. Okay. And uh, he, he gave her the key, the password, to be able to take down the videos. So, they, these are evil people. 
they don't want the gospel getting out to people. Now, he denies all that, but the facts are the facts, and we have the proof. So, It reminded me of a dream I had from a few weeks back where David was in the same shed at the back of his house cleaning out a single rat. There's that last rat. (laughs) Well, this would be the last one that temporarily escaped, but probably the current factious leader. Uh, And we had a dream of him going to hell, and that would be when the man-child is spiritually crucified. The, The job is over, right? Judas has a job to do. He had a job to do. Didn't I choose you twelve and one of you is a devil, Jesus said? He knew what Judas was there for. And, of course, it's the same today. He has a job to do. When it's over, he's over. The dreams we have had show the faction throwing witchcraft curses at us and the angels throwing them back. The angels just told us that they are covered with these curses that they sent towards us. And one of these curses was an invasion of millipedes under our house and uh, deck, which we came against by faith. Eve said, When I was at David's house, I saw a vision of a giant demon ten feet tall standing at the back deck near to the bird feeder. I later found out his name was Lorgonus. He had white eyes like he was blind and had a large barrel-shaped chest and skinny arms and legs. He had his claws raised up like he was going to get us and a large, gaping, toothless mouth. He was covered with large millipedes swarming all over him and mice and frogs hopping and crawling over him, as well as wasps, etc. So he is a, a, a demon that, that administers curses, right? So David and Michael said we should go out and command the demon by name to leave and take all of his pests with him. So we did, and now he's gone. And his millipedes. Praise God. And um, this revelation given to Winnie Asagata, uh, 8-2022, we called it the blackbird standing in the way of our promises. Hmm. I dreamt that I was in a house that I do not recognize, but it seems that I lived there. I believe that I was in the kitchen of this house, And there was a small window with pale red swinging shutters attached. A couple of birds flew in, but the one that I remember specifically was a large black bird with two red stripes on each side of its head. This could represent anarchy. The red stripes could represent sin in the Bible where it speaks of sin like crimson. I also think it's possible the bird's double stripes on each side of its head could represent the sin of double-mindedness. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's an identification that's pretty good, I think. And when the shutters flew open 
from the birds having entered, I could see a large, beautiful scarlet macaw parrot right outside of the window, locked up in a medium bird cage. So the scarlet macaw was still locked up when the other bird came into the house. Okay. Scarlet macaws in my dream, she said, represent God's promises to me. And he used it symbolically in this way before, because when I was younger, I asked the Lord for this very specific parrot. And in a dream several years later, he sent me this bird in a gift box. The colors of this specific parrot remind me of Joseph's coat of many colors. Well, just before the man-child Joseph comes out of prison to rule, the blackbird returns. Watch. Also, parrots repeat what we say, so it reminds me of believing and speaking only God's promises over our lives in order to see it come to fruition. Oh, this is all very true, very good. And as I saw the blackbird come in and land on a perch, I said out loud, Oh, one of the factious women that used to fellowship with UBM has returned. Wow. And we have dreams that this will happen. So we know that this is a confirmation. When we met yesterday at the park pavilion, I told the Lord to confirm this dream by having someone mention the factious woman's name, and sure enough, Eve brought her name up momentarily. I asked Chuck to get me a verse by faith at random, and he received Psalm one twelve ten. The wicked shall see it and be grieved. He shall gnash with his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. Yes, I believe that uh, also that this blackbird was a representation of the elect of God who were just deceived by these people, these factious leaders, and uh, that they will return by the grace of God. And we pray for it all the time. So, uh, Isaac Payne got this revelation on eight nineteen twenty two. David Manchiles dipped their boots in living water. I had a short dream last night, and it was very quick and to the point. In this dream, I was at David's house. I'm not sure if I was there physically or just witnessing it in the spirit. I saw David Eels, uh, probably as a type of the man-child walking into his house in the country. His house was surrounded by tall, luscious trees. True. The way the trees surrounded his house was all-encompassing on all sides other than the entrance. The entrance of the house had a lot of natural sunlight. And we call that sunlight. (laughs) S-O-N. I watched David uh, walk up uh, the porch and into his house. He was wearing tall, waterproof boots. 
I think the waterproof boots symbolize his immunity from the curse that is in the water of the Word of God. Second Peter 3, 5-7, he gave, For this they willfully forget, that there were heavens from of old, and an earth compacted out of water, and amidst water, by the word of God, by which means the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. So the water that became a curse to the wicked also saved Noah, right? But the heavens that now are and the earth by the same word have been stored up for fire being reserved against the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Oh boy, we'll see, we're seeing it now. And of course, the uh, Red Sea, uh, these are the people that chase God's people. And in uh, Eve's vision of the Red Sea, these people were to be destroyed at that time, just before going into what? The wilderness, which is what? The tribulation. It seemed David was going inside his house after a long day of work. Matthew nine thirty seven and 38 he gives here. Then saith he to his disciples, The harvest is indeed plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he send forth laborers into his harvest. I believe that this represents David as a laborer for the kingdom, he said. Next to the foundation of his house was a small stream. It was located directly next to the brick foundation of his house. Matthew seven twenty four and 25, he gives here. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like unto a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. He went on to say, It was a stream with a rock bed that had flowing water that was crystal clear. Well, John 7 and 38 he gives here, he that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, from within him shall flow rivers of living water. I believe this verse sums the dream up. David's house is his temple on a rock foundation. The word Jesus in him creates streams of living water. I knew the waters were cold and refreshing. It wasn't as some streams that do not have stones but instead are dirt and made muddy water. Uh, this, this had stones on both sides of the stream and in the bottom, and the water was maybe a foot deep, but flowing beautifully. David walked up the front porch, and before entering his house, he dipped his boots into the flowing stream. His boots looked spotless and brand new, and the stream had no dirt or filthy residue. It was just perfect and crystal clear. And David looked at me with a smile on his face and said, I like that. He then walked inside his house and, and I woke up. 
Well, what came to me was Romans ten fourteen and 15. It says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? Even as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that bring glad tidings of good things. And, of course, the feet were washed in the clear water. In Isaiah 41 and 27, I am the first that saith unto Zion, Behold, behold them, and I will give to Jerusalem one that bringeth good tidings. In Isaiah 40 and 9, O thou that tellest good tidings to Zion, get thee up on a high mountain, O thou that tellest good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up thy voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid, say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come as a mighty one, and his arm will rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Yes, his recompense is, of course, to bring down the Edomites, and his reward is for the bride. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lamps, the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and will gently lead those that have their young. And Isaiah 52 and 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings that publisheth peace, that bringeth us good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. The voice of thy watchmen, they lift up the voice. Together do they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord returns to Zion. Ooh, praise God. Some pretty good confirmations there. Amen. Yes, Lord, um, thank you for your good news going forth. The real good news going forth to your people. We pray that, uh, like the angel said, they will send out our books all over the world supernaturally. We know that they've done that before. Uh, we remember when they multiplied Sandy's books. I forget exactly how many she took with her, eight or so, nine maybe, uh, and she gave away 40 because every time she'd open her bag on, um, or when she'd open a drawer, there'd be some more, and she would hand them out. And it was nothing but the angels putting them there. So they can do that. I would ask everybody out there to pray for that. Also, I would pray that everyone out there would pray uh, for the missionaries. They, they, they're growing in the Lord, in the wisdom of God, uh, but they have many evil enemies, many factious people, uh, religious factious people coming against them. I would ask you to pray for them and do spiritual warfare for them. Amen. And thank you so much for being with us today. God bless you and keep you. Uh, also, Brother Michael is coming, and we're, he's going to bless you with a word.
And we thank you for that, Lord. And we ask you to bless that word, to, to bless the people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. God bless you and keep you. We'll do this again sometime. Good night. Well, thank you, Brother David, and God bless you. Hello, saints. It's good to be back with you again on this fine September morning. Let's go to the Lord. Father God, I just thank you so much for your word and the relationship that we have with you. I ask, Father, that you draw us nigh, draw us closer, Father, to you in a way that it would be a relationship of father and son. And I thank you for it, Father. I thank you, Lord, that we do have that that ability and the wherewithal through the Holy Spirit to come to our Father and to talk with our Father and to converse with Him and to walk with Him as Adam did in the cool of the morning. And Lord, I thank you for this wonderful man, E.W. Kenyon, and the things that you showed him about our relationship with you, Lord. And I ask that you anoint us today to share with the uh, saints out there, Lord, this wonderful gift, and I thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Well, I want to relate that. The little booklet was called The Father and His Family by E.W. Kenyon. And it starts out with the first words. Thinking men and women of this age have been rebelling against the orthodox interpretation of the Bible as presented in denominational creeds. A spirit of unrest has seized the heart of Christendom. Many of the old landmarks of faith have been destroyed by modern criticism. The faith of millions has been shattered. The church has lost its grip on the imagination of the age. The ministry is wandering in the byways of unbelief. They have found an interrogation point on every signboard of theological thought. There is almost no coherence of doctrine in any of our denominational bodies. And we are confronted with questions which demand answers. Here is the world, a universe, and a human family. Why are they? And science has not answered the question nor attempted to solve the problem. We came to believe in the early days of our investigation that there could be no enduring system of science, philosophy, or theology that was not based upon an intelligent answer to the age-long problem of the why of creation. The father fact and the family fact are the two mightiest facts of the Bible. The plan of redemption swings about this twofold center. These two basic facts of revelation have been covered by the verbiage of theological speculation. The whole plan of redemption is, first, the Father God's dream for a family. Second, redemption from a sin catastrophe. And third, the dream coming true. And fourth, the family home, the new heavens and the new earth. 
The entire plan of redemption is a revelation of the heart hunger and loneliness of the great Father God. The first step in this stupendous drama of creation was God's dream and his blueprints of man's beautiful home. No prospective husband father ever dreamed more ardently of the home nest than did the Father God dream over the contemplated home of his child, the human. So he took on to build an earth home to store it with treasures that only his mind could conceive and his power create. After he had perfected on earth, he placed the stars and suns and moons and wonderful constellations throughout space. And to each of these seen, as well as unseen worlds, he fastened the earth by the invisible cords of gravitation. Each star and constellation is held in its place by the word of his power, and each one has a regular course marked out over which it travels. Each star and planet, each constellation and group has its own office work to perform for the earth, God's wonderful home for his human, his child, his family. And this is a story of love's processes to save man from himself and to present him a faultless, happy family in the presence of the living Father God. Glory to God. Christianity is not a religion. It is a family, a father and his children. It differs from all the religions in the world in this respect. It's not a creed, nor a set of doctrines, nor a body of ethics. Creeds have been made out of it, and laws have been made out of it. Doctrines have been formulated from its teachings, and the world's best ethics have been its products. They are all parts of it, segments of the great family fact. The genius of Christianity is that its God is the great family God of the universe. Christianity is not a science any more than your family is a science, but it's based upon scientific facts. Christianity is not a philosophy, but it is the revelation of the divine human relationships. Christianity is not a theology. It is the reality of man's redemption and union with God. Years ago in California, a miner found his claim was given out. He had built a cabin. It had become a home to him. His heart was utterly discouraged. Prospect after prospect had failed him. And sitting in front of the cabin one morning, he decided to plant some flowers. And taking his pick and shovel, he began to work. He had worked but a few moments when he uncovered one of the richest veins of ore in that entire section and he had walked over it for years. And the same thing is true about one of the most remarkable discoveries we have ever made in the Word. The difference between the miner and ourselves is this. We have known this fact in a vague way, but never realized its significance. 
We didn't know that it solved the whole rationalistic attitude of the scholastic world toward the Bible. We didn't know that it solved the problem of biblical interpretation. And we didn't know that it was the solution for the condition of the modern church. And we didn't know that it solved the problem of the apostasy of a large part of our theological schools. And it is the amazing fact that there are two kinds of knowledge in the world today. And we have never contrasted them or compared them. One is the knowledge that we teach in our great university, technical schools, and colleges. The other is knowledge that comes from the book called the Bible. One is knowledge that we have obtained through the five senses. The other is a revelation from God. It is an acknowledged fact that all the knowledge that the scientific world, the educational world, and the mechanical world have today has come through these five senses of seeing, hearing, feeling, tasting, and smelling. Every contact that man has ever had with the universe has come to him through his five senses. He has gained no knowledge independently of them. Now, we may illustrate the limitation of sense knowledge by the following example. That is, a blind man who has never possessed a sense of sight could never know anything of color. A deaf man who had never heard could never know anything of sound. And so we also, with their five senses, know nothing except as it has come to our minds through these five channels. In other words, that vast body of knowledge has come through experimentation. Our bodies have been the source of this knowledge. We call it sense knowledge. It comes through sense perception. Our bodies have really been experimenting stations. The vast knowledge of chemistry, metallurgy, and mechanics has come through man's persistent experiments. And it is no wonder that these men who have only contacted the physical through their sense perceptions should deny the existence of God because they can't find him in the material world. They can't find spirit nor soul through their experiments in chemistry or biology. And you can see why they naturally would rule out the supernatural. Why miracles would be impossible to them. And they don't realize the fact that there are just as great realities in the realm of the spirit as in the realm of the material. And they have failed to grasp the fact that man is a spirit being and that a revelation from God was imperative. This revelation knowledge leads us into the realm of miracles. And by this revelation, we have come to know God as a real father. We have been able to contact him, able to bring him into the material world where we have come to know him. Since knowledge cannot know God, cannot find him, cannot see him, cannot hear him, cannot feel him. Consequently, in their realm, they deny his existence. 
you can understand now why a man who has never been born again cannot expound the scriptures and give us their spiritual content. Only a man whose mind has been illuminated by the new birth can know God or understand his revelation. And this explains why the church should not have taken so seriously the criticisms of the Bible by men of great scholarship who had never been born again. Some of these men have even translated the Bible. We don't question their honesty or their scholarship. They bet they did the best that a man with mere sense knowledge could do. And we would not feel like criticizing a blind man for his inter- attempt to interpret one of our great masterpieces of art. And this explains why Dr. Darwin gave to us the Darwinian hypothesis of evolution. Sense knowledge is limited. Natural man does not know the source of life, the source of matter, or the origin of man, or the origin of the animal kingdom. He knows nothing of how creation came into being. And he feels that he must give some explanation, and so he guesses. Evolution is largely made up of guesses. We have God's declaration of how all these came into being. Sense knowledge repudiates it, and we can understand that. It would be unnatural for them to do otherwise. And we can see now the limitations of sense knowledge. And it's explained fully in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and is climaxed in the 14th verse. Now, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, and he cannot know them because they are spiritually understood. Now, we're told here that the natural man cannot know the things of God because they are spiritually discerned. He can only know material things. And we can understand this, for we know that every contact that man has with the outward world is through his central nervous system and his five senses. And that's the sense of sight, hearing, touch, taste, and smell. These senses belong to the physical body, and they can only contact matter. Therefore, man knows only that which is physically discerned. He has learned a great deal about the universe in which he lives, but nothing about the Creator. As Voltaire has said, he has been able to study the stars, but himself he has not come to know. God has met man on his own level, and given to him a revelation that he can contact with his five senses. And he tells us how he has done this in 1 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13. Now we have received not the spirit which is of the world, but the spirit which is from God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak not in words, which man's wisdom teaches, but which the spirit teaches, combining spiritual things with spiritual words. This shows us that in words which man can see with his sense of sight and hear with his senses of hearing, God has given a revelation of his plans and purposes to man. The question might arise in the minds of some, why is it that God created man in such a way that it would be impossible for him to know him without a revelation? God created man, a spirit being, and gave to him a body for the home of the spirit. 
and through his physical body, man was to contact the outward world, which was to be his home. This knowledge of this world was to come to him through the medium of his five senses. The purpose of the nervous system was never to reveal God to man. Man was to know God through his spirit. And when man died spiritually, that is, became alienated from God, he was left without a channel through which he could know God. It then became necessary for God to meet man on the level of the medium through which he gained his knowledge. God has done this, and this revelation is known to us as the Bible. The natural man, the physical man, the man with only sense knowledge, cannot understand this revelation of God. He must be recreated, his mind illuminated, before he can judge spiritual things. So the church need not be terrified by the new atheistic attitude toward the Bible. Practically all the modern scientists show in their writings a hunger for God, but they can't find him with sense knowledge. And we want to show the sense knowledge people the need of a revelation and the facts that are revealed in this revelation. The more profoundly phenomena have been studied by scientists and scientific philosophers, the more gloriously have shown out the truth to which I have alluded, that God has busied himself in preparing for man's advent, that man has been the grand goal of his endeavor, the ultimate goal of his creative thought on this planet, that all this preparation could not have been merely to render comfortable a short-lived and low-planed animal existence, that this patient approach could not have been to a consummation so inconsequential and unworthy, but that he for whom the centuries have been so long waiting and wears the crown surely was not born to die. W.W. Kinsley in the introduction to this. Now, the first chapter. The reason for creation shows the designer's master hand. Blind chance is not its author. Whether you explore the mysteries of the mineral kingdom, the vegetable, or the animal from the lowest to the highest, the marks of a well-thought-out design confront you everywhere. Nothing has been left to chance. Creation has been governed with the iron hand of fixed laws. The microscope reveals this even among the most minute forms of life. And that same law prevails from the lowest germ cell to the highest forms of creation. An intelligent purpose pervades it all. There is a grand focal objective in every step of creation. He who laid the foundation of the earth had the same plan and purpose, the same blueprints as he who put the last finishing touches upon it. And it may seem strange, nevertheless it's true, that science has given no adequate reason for creation. She has been silent here. And yet, this is where she should have lost her first ship of exploration. There can be no scheme of the origin of the cosmos or the universe that does not explain the why of creation. If creation is a child of blind, unreasoning, undesigning chance, Chance is a miracle worker and worthy of our adoration. 
philosophy that recognizes no holy of holies in any department of human endeavor has not attempted to answer this question and has left no footprints in these halls. Her voice has never been heard in this debate. The poet alone has turned his lyre to this lofty theme. Theology, the mother of the sciences and arts and the inspiration of all philosophies, has never yet given a reason for creation. She has built a mighty superstructure without a foundation. She has argued fluently of divine sovereignty and freedom of will, but she has been mute here. Her theologians have found more pleasure in abstract theology than in personal dealings with God, found more joy in metaphysics than in divine knowledge, more pleasure in the opinions of man than in the word of God. Neither science, philosophy, nor theology has ever yet been able to write a textbook that would survive a generation. We have forgotten that truth is eternal while theories are time-limited. No one thinks of revising the multiplication table. Truth has never needed a revision. Theories are revised from age to age. In spite of all the assaults and ridicule that have been hurled at the first three chapters of Genesis, they still stand as the only intelligent mind-satisfying reason for creation. And it may be interesting for us to notice first that that portion of Scripture declares that the earth is the reason for all heavenly bodies that swing in their mighty orbits through dark, illimitable space. Genesis compels a complete reconstruction of our theories of creation. Genesis chapter 1 verses 14 through 19 says, And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. You will notice in this statement that the earth was already created and held in its place by the word of God. Now he begins to place the suns, moons, stars, and planets in their respective positions in the firmament to minister to this earth, to divide the days and nights, to give us signs and seasons, days and years. And it was seen from this scripture that the earth is the reason for the universe. And as far as we know from the best astronomers, our earth is the only planet in the universe that has life upon it. And if this be true, it proves that the earth holds a place in the plan and purpose of God that is amazing. Now, to refer once more to our quotation from Scripture, to let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and to give light upon the earth. We know that the, the, the tides of the oceans and seas are affected 
by the influence of the heavenly bodies. We know that heat and cold, drought and storm are the direct results of planetary influence. We know that storms can be predicted for certain localities on this continent by the position and influence of certain planets. This is being done from week to week. It has become one of the assured sciences. An earthquake can be predicted years ahead because certain planets will focalize their influence for an hour upon a certain point of the Earth's surface, which will cause a convulsion. We know that frosts and heat waves are predicted months ahead by the sure knowledge of planetary positions. And from these deductions, we see clearly that the planets were placed in the heavens to give us seasons, to be signs, to be the continual companions and servants always ministering to the earth. And once more, we want to state that this proves that the earth is the reason for that great star-spangled universe we call the heavens. And to illustrate this, it might be interesting to relate a story that's being told of a noted astronomer who was discussing with his son one day the influence of the heavenly bodies on the earth. He made this remark. I have noticed that at certain times the earth is lifted out of her orbit or path by an unseen body lying beyond the reach of our most powerful telescope. If ever they build a larger telescope, I wish you would go and search the heavens to find out what it is that so affects this planet of ours. And when the great Lick Observatory was reared with his powerful telescope, this sun traveled across sea and continent, and one clear night turned the great telescope against the dark space in the heavens where this unseen, uncharted planet reached down its mighty hand and gripped the earth. After gazing a while, suddenly there appeared a tiny speck of light. It was a star swinging in its giant orbit away out on the frontier of the universe. He saw the planet that had so strangely affected the earth. It was millions of miles beyond the farthest star that the human eye had ever seen. Yet, this giant star sweeping on its great orbit came regularly every few years close enough to our planet so that it can reach its mighty hand of gravitation down through the unmeasured space and grip our little earth and lift it out of its orbit. As a ship on the ocean responds to the slightest touch of the helm, our earth responds to the touch of that distant sentinel and veers swiftly out of its course. Then, when the planet's grip is loosed, back into its path it comes and goes rhythmically on its way. This establishes one fact, that there is neither planet, nor sun, nor moon, nor star in all the vast universe, but has its influence upon this little planet of ours. How it thrills the heart to realize that this earth of ours, so small, that 1,000 of them can be lost in the sun, is the center and reason for the universe, talking about this earth. Tonight, this old earth of ours is being held as safely in the embrace of those uncounted and uncharted planets as a child in its mother's arms. The heavens are tonight 
Earth's only perfect timepiece. No watch or clock ever built by man can give us perfect time. But he who knows the path of the stars knows that every star or sun or planet will pass a certain given point in the great unpassed space on scheduled time. The star may not have been seen for thousands of years, but she will appear at the crossroads of the heavens, not one second ahead, nor one second behind her schedule. Oh, the wonder of the architect, the marvel of the creator, the might of the sustainer of this great universe of ours. Now, if the earth is the reason for the stellar heavens, what is the reason for the earth? Before the morning stars sang their first anthem to the heart of the lonely Father God, before the foundations of the earth were laid, before the first rays of light ever passed through the dark expanse, the heart of the great Creator God had a yearning, a deep, mighty, eternal. It was the primordial passion for children. The Father, heart of the Creator, the God, longed for sons and daughters. This yearning passion took form and God planned the universe for his man. And in the heart of that universe, he purposed a home. There's no time with God. Time belongs to day and night, to sun and moon. The omnipotent God was not hampered by days nor nights nor years. When love laid the foundations of this mighty universe, he planned, he purposed it all to be the home of his man. It was to be man's birthplace, man's garden of delight, man's university where he would learn to know his father's God. Love took plenty of time. He worked storing up treasures of all kinds of wealth for his man. He filled earth's bosom with deposits of iron, copper, silver, and gold with uncounted varieties of metals, chemicals, and resources that would respond to the touch of his man. He covered the face of the earth with mountains, valleys, ravines, plateaus, and prairies, lovely rivulets and mighty rivers, and a garment of green intermingled with many colored flowers that thrilled with the joy the heart of his man. The mountainsides are covered with giant forests, whose trees are filled with singing birds and droning insects, whose dainty wings beat against the genial wind and make a melody fit for his man. Fruits and vegetables abound in profusion, spelling out in nature's language the love of the great Father, heart of God for his man. This interprets the great dream, the heart plan the great Father God has for his man. The architect knew on what sections of the earth's surface the human was segregate. There he placed his great deposits of copper, iron, ore, uh, I'm sorry, iron ore, of coal, limestone, and all the other natural resources and chemicals necessary for the arts, mechanics, and the sciences of earth's teeming population. Near it, you will find the greatest deposits of chemicals and metals and minerals and oils. He grouped them so that they would be ready for man's need. Chance didn't rule here. 
had platinum and gold been as plentiful as iron and iron as scarce as gold, there never would have been a mechanical age. The steel rails that gird the earth that bind nations together would have been impossible. The mighty mogul engine would, could never have been built of gold or copper. The great architect of human need and joy knew man's need while yet unborn and in creation's wondrous plan these needs were met. Now regarding the animal kingdom. In the animal creation, it will be interesting to note that there are today approximately 25 domestic animals. Scientists have tried to tell us that the dog and house cat were formerly wild and have simply been domesticated. But nature contradicts it. There is a dog to meet every need of man from the Arctic to the equator and from the rising to the setting of the sun. The strange thing about it is that no wild animal as yet has been ever, ever been able to take the place of our domestics. They tell us that the dog belongs to the wolf family, but who had ever been able to take a wolf of any species and tame it to make a lap dog of it, a guard and companion to his children, or a daily associate on the farm or home? You might keep him 20 generations, but he's still a wolf. If you let our faithful friend of the human, the dog, go wild in the forest for 20 generations and then capture and take him to your home within a week, he's your servant and friend and slave who will lay his life down for you. The dog was created by God Almighty to be the faithful servant and companion and lover of man. One common house cat was created to to be the household friend and chum of children and childhood and pet of the aged. When the wise master builder made the horse, he designed him purposely to meet the needs of his man as a servant and a, and a beast of burden. He left a place in its mouth where no teeth grow that a bit might be held without inconvenience that the horse might be able to eat its food with the bit still in its mouth. Had the cow been given the fierce disposition of a hyena or lion, she would have been totally unfit for domestic purposes. Had the dog been given the disposition of the wolf or fox, or had our cat been given the disposition of a tiger, they would have been unsafe for our home. Had the horse been given the disposition of the zebra, it never would have been man's beast of burden, an inseparable friend. No, he who created man knew that man would need domestic animals that would respond to the touch of love, animals that would pine and yearn for, human companionship, and that would gladly obey the human voice. So I might speak of the other domestic animals that show the wise provision of an intelligent creator if I had space vegetable kingdom. It would be of interest, intense interest for us to look at the great variety of woods that were created for man. There are 183 varieties of the eucalyptus family alone. These with the oak, the sighing pine, the laughing maple, the delicate willow, the lonely poplar were created to fill a need and went in humanity's development and expansion. 
There are over 100,000 classified varieties in the vegetable kingdom. There are over 500,000 insects that feed on these 100,000 varieties. Every plant, shrub, vegetable, fruit, or tree of the entire vegetable kingdom was designed and planned for man's use. And as man grows intellectually and delves into the mysteries of the vegetable kingdom, he is finding there the answer to thousands of needs that are continually coming in this great mechanical age. Now, the reason for man. If the earth is the reason for the heavens and man is the reason for the earth, what is the reason for man? There's only one answer, and it's real simple. The lonely heart of the great Father God. Paul tells us in Ephesians that all fatherhood heads up in God, whether the families on earth or the families in heaven. God's heart yearned for children, craved sons and daughters. He had angels to minister to him as servants, but he wanted children. So he spent with love's wonderful patience, age on age, in the preparation of the earth and the heavens for his man. And if this, if this be true, and true it is, then man is a most wonderful thing. If God so wanted man and so loved man that he spent time in preparation for him, what a place that man must hold in his heart is his dream and in his eternity. Man has become master of the world. Other creatures hold their lives at his pleasure. The earth yields her stores of fruits, fuels, and minerals to his machinery. He collects power from the rivers and the sun. He communicates his thoughts around the world almost instantaneously. He explores the universe with his telescope and spectroscope. And he rides on air, land, and water at speeds exceeding that of the swiftest of birds. Even in his fallen, dethroned estate, man bears traces of his original portion as master of the universe. Man's treason. Is the present condition of man normal? Are we living under the Father's ideal and plan for the human? Are sin, sickness, and death a part of God's plan? Is he their author? Are hatred, jealousy, and murder a part of God's plan? Are the unnatural fratricidal wars that sweep the earth a part of God's original purpose? Did God have an original plan without sin, without pain? without grief, without hate, and without death. We believe that God's heart is the reason not only for creation, but for creation's crown, man. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blemish before him, in love, having foreordained us unto adoption as sons through Jesus Christ unto himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Man was marked out for sonship before the foundations of the world. Love marked us out for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ unto himself. In other words, before the foundation of the world, he purposed a family, and man is the answer to that purpose. What kind of being was man in the beginning? In Genesis 1, 
It declares that man was created in God's own image after his own likeness. What is meant by in his own image and likeness? Well, from what we know of the original man, God created him to be his companion and eternal associate. He is a spirit being, although he lives in a physical body. Ecclesiastes 3 and 11, God set eternity in his heart. And we know that he was created to be the companion of the Creator. He was not to fill the place of a servant to a master or a domestic animal to his owner, but was to be a son and fellow companion and associate of the Eternal Father throughout eternity. It might be interesting, before we go into the subject more fully, to note the kind of a being man was at the beginning. Kind of man. Darwin's hypothesis of evolution that grew out of sense knowledge has thrown her dark cloud of unbelief and fatalism over the age and makes truth hard to be understood. But in the face of this, we want to prosecute our investigation. In our narrow limits, it will be impossible for us to enter into the discussion of evolution. It is sufficient to say that the latest noteworthy statement of science is that there are three distinct kinds of life, that these three are separated by impassable chasms, namely vegetable life, animal life, and human life. The vegetable can never cross the chasm to the animal, and the animal can never cross over to the human. This forever destroys the Darwinian hypothesis that was born in the realm of the senses. Now, we might call attention to the fact that in their wild state, no animals, even of the same species, ever crossed. The different varieties never mingle. Nowhere either, in fossil or in forest fastness, was there ever found a cross between the bear and the deer, the deer and the tiger, the lion and the hyena, or the crow and the robin, the hawk and the dove, or the horse and the elephant. Genesis 1, 24 through 25 says this, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after its kind. And God saw that it was good. After a most careful and searching examination of fossils in all stages in animal history, this statement of Genesis remains true. Every animal after its own kind. The skeptic cannot find one place in all animal history where there was ever a cross of species from the most minute organisms to the largest of mammals. Everything has stayed in its own class by itself. You can find the firm embedded in the great beds of coal, but it is the same fern that you pick today in the cool shade of the forest. The maple leaf that is found and embedded down 1,100 feet underground, underneath the strata of coal, is the same maple leaf that we know. There's no change in it. It has the same number of points, the same shape, 
as the maple leaf that grows in your lawn. The same form of life that we find today in the bed of the ocean is found in the rocks. It has never changed. No, nature knows her laws, and the wild animal lives in perfect obedience to them. Man, the crown of creation. Scripture declares that when man was created, he had a mind intellectually of such a character that he was able to name the entire animal creation. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 19. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatsoever the man called of every living creature, that was the name thereof. And the man gave names to all cattle and all birds of the heavens and to all beasts of the field. And the name that was given described the characteristics and nature of the animal. And when we realize that there are more than 500,000 bugs, birds, worms, animals, fish, and reptiles, and that man named them, we realize that he could not have been any half-developed missing link of the Simeon family. No, he came full circle from the wounds of creation, fit to be ruler over creation. He was not only created with an intellect of such marvelous powers, but also with spiritual capacities that made him the fit companion of the deity. Man's dominion. Again, God gave him dominion over all the works of his hands, as described in Genesis 128, Psalms 8, uh, verses 3 and 4. Psalms 8, verses 3 and 4 says, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visited him? Hebrews 2 and 7 says, Thou hast made him but little lower than the angels. The Hebrew word translated angels in this verse is the same word translated God in Genesis 1 and 1. And should have been translated as follows. Thou hast made him but little lower than God, and crowned him with glory and honor, and made him to have dominion, dominion over all the works of thy hand, and put all things under his feet. Notice here that man is made but little lower than God. As one eminent Hebraist translates, thou hast made him but a shade lower than God. In other words, when man was created, he was made it, he was made as near like deity as it was possible for deity to create him. He was made to be God's companion. Next, you notice that God gave him dominion over all the works of his hand. He ruled not only the animal creation, but he also ruled the laws of creation. He ruled the very stars and their courses. He was God's under ruler. He was the subject of no being or law save God and the law of love. This in itself is a most remarkable fact, but it perfectly coincides with man's dreams of dominion. Man was never made to be a subject or slave. And we see glimpses of man's dominion down through the ages of humanity's history. Moses had the dominion over the laws of nature when he spoke to the Red Sea. It opened before him. A huge gap cut by an unseen hand with its walls 
towering hundreds of feet on either side. And there it stood at the voice of a man till four million people with their stock and herds, their families and slaves went pouring through dry shod to liberty on the other side. And then by the same voice of that same man, the waters came thundering together with a crash that took the heathen nations for generations. And we see Joshua speaking to the Jordan and that turbulent river responded to the voice of its master and opened a path for triumphant Israel to reach its promised land. And we hear the same man speaking to the sun and moon. And they stood still hour after hour until he wrought a victory over his enemies. We see the intrepid Elijah calling fire out of heaven. We see Daniel's three companions thrown into the fiery furnace, come out without a burn or smell of fire on their garments. Then we quietly drop down through the ages to the Nazarene, and see him exercising the same authority given to man at the beginning. Jesus, having been born free from the taint of mortality, held the same authority and dominion as the first man. We see Jesus exercising this authority over the Sea of Galilee, over the maimed legs and arms of suffering humanity, over death, and over the fish of the sea, over the trees of the field, and over Satan. Jesus rules absolute master and monarch of creation. Well, glory to God. I'm out of time. God bless you. Hope we'll, be, we'll do some more of this next time. God willing. For information, materials, and to contribute, go to unleavenedbreadministries.org. Contributions only may be addressed to David Eels, Post Office Box 231616, Montgomery, Alabama, 36123. Though the mountains fall into the sea, though the rivers rise, I still believe. For your mercy stands and your word is true, oh Jesus, I trust in you. And when I face that darkest night,